I'm Rachel, and this is Nick, and this is Neuroscience Undressed. Hey, Rachel, and hello, everybody out there. Um, so today we're going to be talking about stress, and <sighs> stress is a little bit, it's an interesting topic because one, we hear about it all the time in the news, you know, you don't want to be stressed all the time because it, you know, is bad for you. And we want to be kind of careful and um, kind of put stress into two different categories here. Mm -hmm. We separate acute stress and we separate it from chronic stress, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And and in addition to acute stress and chronic stress, we also have what's called positive and, or well, we have eustress and distress. So eustress is considered actually good stress and distress is considered negative stress. Um, so, I mean, good stress sounds kind of um, it's an oxymoron. oxymoronic, yeah. Jumbo but, shrimp. Yeah, but um, actually, uh, so stress can be good for you. So there's something called, if you've ever seen an inverted U graph, um, there is an inverted U in stress. So basically, on one end, um, we've got, you have insufficient stress will actually cause a lot of the same issues that um, excess stress will. So um, that includes, you know, lowered cognitive capacity and depression and things that are really unproductive. And, and, and when you say insufficient stress, you mean uh, too, too, too little stress. Too little stress. Mm -hmm. So this, I, so an example of good stress is deadlines. I always mm -hmm. like to use deadlines. Um, that's a great example of, um, so for example, um, a lot of people that run choose to sign up for 5Ks um, or marathons or whatever because having a date, a deadline by which to have accomplished that goal really helps them to do it. Um, that's something that those people have recognized and sort of tapped into. Um, I know that I, I mean, just from personal experience, I know that I tend to do better work when I am up against a deadline. Um, mm -hmm. You give me just kind of an indefinite period of time to do something. Probably not, won't get done. <laughs> it, it, either it's not going to get done or it's not going to be done well. Yeah. I, and I, yeah. Um, so I think we all had that experience. And we talked about that this is really, um, this has a lot of implications for people that are either in between jobs mm -hmm. or retired. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, you know, a lot of people have this idea that they're going to retire and explore all their hobbies and it's going to be great. Um, and that's all well and good. But um, there is the potential for the negative effects of insufficient stress. Um, so it might be important for people going forward to think about things like signing up for competitions mm -hmm. or, you know, if, I mean, if your hobby is, I don't know, I don't want to say something stereotypical, but. Bingo, golfing. bingo and <laughs> shuffleboard for, so for the old folks. Um, no, I mean, even if you're, you know, a runner <laughs> and you, you know, if you are retired and you love to run, then, you know, sign up for a charity 5K. Or you if you do like bridge or golf, golfing or bridge competitions, things that get you to a certain point on time and cause or cause some amount. So, like, you know, a competition where you're competing is going mm -hmm. to elevate stress in some way. Um, and that can actually be a positive thing. Mm -hmm. So, um and we're going to get, uh, you know, as we talk more talk, talk more about stress, we're going to kind of get into some of the adaptive mechanisms that actually uh, stress can can mediate there's mediate? the great word mediate <laughs> and you know just uh, talk about some of the research and what stress has been associated with and how doing uh, you know activities that are both enriching and 
you know, place you in some sort of cognitive load can actually be protective. Mm-hmm. Um, so now we can actually talk about what the stress response is and what happens in your body when you're under acute and chronic stress. That's right. Um, so first we'll talk about acute stress. Do you want to start? Well, I guess I can start us off. Well, yeah. I mean, so just take any sort of scenario where, uh, you know, you, you might feel in danger. So, for example, you're walking across University Boulevard, if you know where that is in Birmingham, and you see a car coming your way and it is like 20 feet from you mm. and you are in the middle of the road. Yeah. So the first thing that's going to happen is um, in the brain, at least, is your amygdala. Well, that really is your first response, I guess, anywhere. But <laughs> <laughs> so the amygdala is going to be the, the, a region of the brain called the amygdala is going to be activated. So this is responsible for fear conditioning, fear learning, fear responses. Um, it's actually implicated in other emotions. But, you know, today we're going to be focusing on on fear. Yes. Um, so this will cause a, just broadly a release of a lot of neurotransmitters. Um, some of them you may have heard um, and may be familiar with. So serotonin, norepinephrine, dopamine, and acetylcholine. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is just overall increasing activity and vigilance um, so that, you know, you're more aware and may be able to... Uh, jump out of the way of a car that's coming towards you um and actually if any of you have ever been in like a life or death situation like that or you know or what feels like a life or death situation like maybe a car wreck or something you've probably noticed the sensation of time slowing down Mm -hmm. you feel like you can see everything um i know that's definitely happened to me um and uh the reason is just this hyper arousal so um you there's actually been studies they've They've actually, someone actually went out and um, demonstrated that there is no time distortion for someone experiencing this state of hyperarousal. Um, the time distortion is um, just a product of being able to see and take in so much information that it feels like a longer spa- mm-hmm. span of time. Um, and yeah, Nick, do you want to talk about what happens next? Yeah, so a number of things happen, but end point being that what we have uh, after that initial, um, you know, kind of recognition of, of a, um, a stressor or, you know, life or death situation is that um, your hypothalamus actually releases um, chemical messengers, uh, also known as hormones, and uh, one of them being CRH. Uh, what is that? Uh, cortico... Releasing hormone? Cortico... Cortico releasing hormone, Cortico-releasing cortico hormone. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Just know it as CRH for now. <laughs> there are a lot of acronyms when it comes to neuroscience, as you neuroscientists out there well know. Science anyway, in general. Well, a lot yes, of acronyms. Exactly. Um, so just know that uh, CRH is released from your hypothalamus. Uh, this sends a message to your anterior pituitary gland, which uh, it then releases ACTH. ACTH then travels to your adrenal, uh, your adrenal glands. And if you don't know this, your adrenal glands are actually located... Um, right above and on your kidneys Mm -hmm. and they release um glucocorticoids and glucocorticoids it's just a fancy term for saying stress hormone uh and if you're a human uh the primary one that we are really concerned with is cortisol Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so um yeah and so that what nick described is the um hormonal response the endocrine response Mm -hmm. so um these chemical messengers that go from the brain to the adrenal glands are traveling through the blood. That's right. Um, but you also have what's called SNS activation or the sympathetic nervous system. Um, 
so you really have one nervous system, but we functionally <laughs> and anatomically divide them into um, into multiple units, and one of those is the sympathetic nervous system. Um, so the sympathetic nervous system, you're probably familiar with hearing the term fight or flight mm-hmm. in response or um, in association with this nervous system. Um, so it, it initiates the fight or flight response by um, uh, neurons that go from the brain to the adrenal glands. Um, and this releases epinephrine and norepinephrine. Also known as adrenaline and noradrenaline. Yes, um, that is true. Mm-hmm. You guys want to comment on Twitter about which one you prefer, because I'm sure uh, many of you neuroscientists out there have an opinion on which one to use. <laughs> yeah, so it turns out, actually, I think in the UK and Canada, adrenaline and noradrenaline are more common. Ah, and I here see. we tend to use epinephrine. It's like aluminum and aluminum. So, so yes, so that um, so those are actually released from uh, this um, the adrenal medulla, which is the center of the adrenal gland, yep. whereas the hormones are released from the cortex or the outside of the adrenal gland. Um, but all of these, so... So epinephrine and norepinephrine are going to have the effect generally of increasing heart rate and blood pressure, and um, they all broadly have the effect of um, of altering metabolism. Mm-hmm. So do you want to talk a bit more about how metabolism changes? Yeah. So, I mean, glucocorticoids or cortisol, um, that has the effect of uh, basically putting your body into a mode where it can have ready access to energy. Um, so it's going to start um, using up its glucose stores. It's going to maybe even uh, catabolize uh, proteins, um, fat cells as well, uh, what's called lipolysis. Mm-hmm. Um, so all sorts of really cool um, you know, metabolic changes to allow you to fight or flee, to have as much energy as you need to handle the situation um, you know, in a way that's conducive to your survival. Mm-hmm. And so in particular, um, glucocorticoids also have, so glucocorticoids are able to travel back to the brain mm-hmm. um, and ha- exert um, exert effects back onto the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the case of chronic stress, this actually causes a lot of problems. That's right. Um, um, and we should also mention uh, just... As an aside, cortisol is 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 what's, is what's called a steroid, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and when it is released through the HPA axis, it actually acts upon the system itself to mm-hmm. inhibit the system. So, as cortisol is released, it has a negative feedback with mm-hmm. the earlier elements of the system. So, as more cortisol is released, it inhibits the um, release of the precursor um, hormones earlier in the in the axis. So, it turns itself off. Unless you're under chronic stress. Unless you're on chronic stress. So um, in chronic stress, when you have cortisol circulating essentially constantly, mm-hmm. um, you see several key changes in the brain. Um, and we'll talk about three primary brain areas. So you're going to see changes in the prefrontal cortex, the amygdala, and the hippocampus. And what are, what are those three brain regions? <laughs> Tell me so, about them. <laughs> so with the prefrontal cortex... Um, I mean, it is essentially you. Um, if there was, if there's one brain region that you could really attribute to your personality and who you are, it's the prefrontal cortex. It's responsible for what's called working memory, um, which is essentially cognition. Mm-hmm. So how you process things and uh, think about things. Right. Um, it is the the little man behind your eyes. It is what's people call the homunculus. It's 
you know, this kind of medieval idea of their, you know, the, the soul being separate from the body. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to th- put any kind of brain region as being, you know, that s- spot, it would be mm-hmm. the prefrontal cortex. So, yes. So we have, so, and also in the prefrontal cortex, we have um, sense of self. Yep. Um, a lot of personality mm-hmm. um, and emotional regulation, mm-hmm. um, among other things. Um, so you have, and then you have the amygdala, which again, we, t- we mentioned briefly is responsible for, um, your fear responses and fear learning and fear conditioning. And then the hippocampus. Um, so a lot of times you, you may have heard that the hippocampus is where long-term memories are stored. It's actually a misconception. They are not stored in the hippocampus, but it is where long-term memories are formed. So when your hippocampus is damaged or, um, in the case of stress, has shrunk, um, you are going to have a harder time forming long-term memories, which is essentially learning learning any new, um, I don't want to say any new information, but any new information that's, any new verbal information. Mm. Um, so you have what, um, memories are often divided, and one of the categories is explicit memories yep. um, or declarative memories, and those are memories that you can actually talk about. Um, so you know, being able to learn new concepts and ideas, that's what the hippocampus is responsible for. Right, and you you see kind of the effects of that in, you know, as you all know, you stress students. Um, it, mm-hmm. it actually has a, you know, it, it has the opposite effect of what, you, of what you actually desire in the given situation. You're stressed out about a test, and you actually have a deficit in your ability to kind of learn new things. Yeah, so... Um, one thing we've talked about is that um, there's been a classic model, and I think, I know Nick has talked about having conversations with people about this. People a lot of times think that you can just, that stress is an issue of mind over matter, mm-hmm. um, that you can um, will yourself to not, to get, to overcome stress. Overcome it through just sheer Willpower. Yeah, will, willpower. Mm-hmm. But as we're seeing, these there are actually these three brain regions that we've talked about. There are actual structural changes that occur in those regions of the brain that would suggest that that is not the case. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the hippocampus, you have um, you actually have the neurons shrink. So you have atrophy of the hippocampus. The region becomes smaller. Um, the same thing occurs in the prefrontal cortex, and then the region or the neurons in the amygdala actually grow and expand. So right. So you have in the uh, basolateral amygdala, amygdala you mm-hmm. have actual you know neuronal hypertrophy. Mm-hmm. So they actually right. expand, and then in the medial amygdala, they like the hippocampus and prefrontal mm-hmm. cortex will actually shrink. shrink. So overall, what this means is decreased capacity for learning. That's right. Um, lowered ability to. Um, think to process things um mm-hmm. it's going to inhibit you know working memory um which is just kind of a way of saying it inhibits overall cognitive mm-hmm. performance um while also making you more um aroused or more apt mm-hmm. to be stimulated by new stressors yes so that's one thing that happens so with the amygdala um with the growth of amygdala neurons or mm-hmm. amygdalic amygdalic neurons Anyway, um, neurons, neurons in the amygdala. amygdala. <laughs> <laughs> With the growth of neurons in the amygdala, yeah, you're going to experience um, hyperactivatability. That was a really weird way to say that. But basically, you're, you're more you're you're more easily aroused. Mm-hmm. Um, you're more likely to not only um, experience fear or stress, but you're more likely to form those memories. Um, so something that 
you know, anyone that's experienced chronic stress may have noticed this, and it's definitely more prevalent in some people than others, but um, sometimes people that have experienced trauma have the experience of um, having stress or anxiety, but not being able to explain what it's in reference to. Um, so this actually is potentially explained by the fact that you do have um, increased activation of the amygdala and reduced activation of the hippocampus. So if you were more able to form fear memories, um, but less likely to be able to form verbal memories, um, you actually can form these associations. They're mm -hmm. unconscious associations, but you would not be able to explain why, um, which is a really tough state to be in. That's right. Um, it can be really frustrating for people. Um, and I think we're going to take a quick break. I'm Nick, and this is Rachel, and we are talking about stress, and when we left off, we were kind of talking about sort of the, the physiology or physiological responses to uh, chronic stress, mm -hmm. and what we kind of, I, I guess, we want to hit on a little bit more is the fact that this, this response from your body is actually an adaptive process. Yes. Yes, it is. So, um... So obviously this is adaptive under acute, or it's adaptive under acute stress to mm -hmm. have this release of glucocorticoids and all of these neurotransmitters and hormones and the things that affect the body um, to make you more vigilant, able to get out of the way of an attack, able to survive. Um, that's all adaptive. Under chronic stress, though, it kind of seems like why would your body do this? You know, why would you have impaired working memory and impaired long-term memory? Because those things seem crucial to survival. Mm -hmm. um, but it turns out that during uh, a stress response, you have an increase in excitatory activity in the brain. Um, and this means more glutamate. So glutamate is an excitatory neurotransmitter. It is the primary excitatory neurotransmitter. Um, and it can induce neuronal death. So it can cause death to your brain cells in the simplest terms. Right, that's um, called excitotoxicity. Correct. So it turns out that in studies, um, they've shown that when you prevent the hippocampus and the prefrontal cortex from atrophying um, under stress, they actually experience neur neuronal death. So basically, what um, shrinking these regions does is protects them from permanent damage. So after, after a period of stress is over, um, it turns out that these neurons essentially return to normal. They'll right. regrow. Um, they'll reach normal size. There are some slight differences. But overall, um, this is a reversible process. Mm -hmm. And so the function of all of these structural changes in the brain is long-term protection. Right, which is fascinating to think about. Mm -hmm. You know, when you think about you know, all, all these processes going on in your brain on top of just being able to, you know, control everything that you do as far as, you know, thought and like your sense of self, but your brain actually has developed mechanisms to protect itself from damage, mm -hmm. which is, mm -hmm. which is just amazing. And uh, Rachel's going to hate me for going into this, but I, I do think it's, it's important to mention. <laughs> 
it is important to mention what excitotoxicity is. And essentially what is going on is that glutamate is released into your, uh, your synapses, and synapses are, just think of them as spaces between uh, axons and dendrites. Spaces between neurons. Spaces between neurons, <laughs> so to speak. Um, and they flood what are called AMPA receptors and NMDA receptors, which are just kind of hanging out on your neuron surface. And when in excitotoxicity, you just have too much glutamate, and it's just hyperactivating these receptors. And what it does is it puts too much calcium into your cells. Mm -hmm. And I, I hesitate to use this, you know, this analogy, but think of calcium in your cells as being like a messenger for your cellular organs to communicate with one another. It's called a second messenger. So just like as your body has hormones, which allows for communication between different parts of your body, your cells has second messengers that allows for different communication between cellular parts. And if you have too much calcium in your cells, it turns on a bunch of other proteins and other mechanisms that can essentially just cause the cell to eat away at itself. And cell death is called what? Apoptosis. That's right. Uh -huh. Apoptosis. So biology lesson over. Uh Actually, uh, it can be necro necrosis or apoptosis. So apoptosis is self-induced cell death. Necrosis is cell death induced by something else. I'm going to go back to school. So anyway, <laughs> um, <coughs> so, um, so now that we've talked about the adaptability of the stress response right. um, under chronic stress, we can talk about stress-related diseases. Um, it's probably common knowledge, but... Um, you know, stress does make you susceptible to a lot of both mental and physical illnesses. Mm -hmm. Included in that is anxiety, um, panic disorder, depression. Um, and, in, and there's been actually a lot of interesting research on um, the structural changes that occur during depression. They are a little bit different from some of these other disorders. Um, and the, <laughs> the changes in the hippocampus during depression may or may not be reversible. Um, so there has been some conflicting research. Some has said that it's not reversible. Um, I saw a reference to a study recently that um, they actually looked at, at um, majorly depressed patients mm -hmm. over the course of 10 years and um, did see reversible changes after um, treatment, so. Yeah, and I, similar to that, I, I also saw one that, should it was reversible, but the the, the spines, the the dendritic spines that w grew back were not the same ones that had shrunk mm -hmm. before. So mm -hmm. the, they, while there is a reversal in the in the atrophy, it's like the neurons are different than they were before. Mm -hmm. They're not the same. And actually, interestingly, I saw a study that even when structural changes, when they didn't observe structural changes in human patients, um, they observed functional differences. Mm -hmm. So. It has to do so. Basically, you have there's different types of scans on the brain um, for the brain, obviously. But there's there's what's called a functional MRI. So it actually um, tells you where activity is essentially. Right. Um, and in depressed patients, the activity, it, even though the resting levels of activity were the exact same, um, activity when they were asked to perform a task was dramatically different from um, healthy patients so it's kind of interesting mm -hmm. um but yeah and do you want to talk about neurogenesis i'll talk about neurogenesis we can talk about neuro 
We can talk about Neuro Exodus if you like. <coughs> but, so, but yeah, let's talk about neurogenesis. So take okay. it away. <laughs> um, so with neurogenesis, so it turns out, um, so generally, as a rule, your brain cannot generate new neurons. Right. Um, the neurons that you have are what are called, they're labeled as post-mitotic. Um, no more mitosis, if you remember, like, high school biology. No more cell division yes. for you. So they, um, the neurons that you have after a certain period of development are just the neurons that you have. Um, if they die, they don't regrow. That's it. Um, but there's actually a specific region of the hippocampus where uh, new neurons form. Right. And it's a, it turns out that these adult-born neurons... Um, both exert effects on stress, and stress also exerts effects on mm, the potential for new neuron gro neuronal growth. So, um, there is a phenomenon where older people that are stressed or depressed um, actually have their neurogenesis slows down so much that um, it appears that they have a neurodegenerative disease. Dementia. So they'll be diagnosed incorrectly. Conversely, um, neurodegenerative diseases actually are sometimes inaccurately diagnosed as depression, um, which is a real problem. So one contributing factor to the variability in people's um, capacity to um, handle stress is um, actually stress itself, and specifically that is prenatal stress. So stress that is encountered by the mother and then um, impacting her child that she is carrying. Um, and I, I, before I came on the show, I actually read a review that found that, um, it, it found that there were three effects um, that prenatal stress had on adult behavior, and that was it, it impaired learning, it uh, increased an adult's sensitivity to drugs of abuse, so they had a higher um, a risk of um, having an, an addictive uh, or an addiction, uh, addictive disorder. And it also increased anxiety and depression-related behaviors. Um, what they speculate is the contributing cause of this is it is, it, at least in the developing brain, it is, it is having a very, very large impact on hippocampal function. Um, Which, again, is responsible for long-term memory. Exactly. So that would explain kind of the learning impairments um, that would also explain the sensitivity to drugs of use because uh, your, uh, what's called your nucleus accumbens is in Lectin your... Lactin and stage But it's part of the same system, right? Mm -hmm. It's part of the, um, the limbic system. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it could be that th there's a certain uh, um, time core or time period in, you know, prenatal development where these effects are really, really magnified. Yeah, so that's what's called a critical period. Yeah. So a critical period is where you basically have a window for permanent damage. Mm -hmm. um, and there's actually, so in addition to um, prenatal stress, uh, stress, chronic stress during childhood is also, um, can have a variety of permanent effects. Mm -hmm. So um, people that are children, or you know, adults that experience um, chronic stress in childhood, including, you know, it could be maltreatment, it could be neglect, it could be um, uh, just a chaotic home environment um, or unpredictability. They experienced um, or they exhibited smaller prefrontal cortex and a smaller hippocampus in adulthood. Um, 
so, I mean, basically susceptible to all the things that you're talking about as well. Right. So if you have a if you have a decreased prefrontal cortex, that would suggest lowered impulse control. Um, so would also explain susceptibility to drug or alcohol abuse. Um, inhibited working memory and inhibited long-term memory. So, and they, they, interesting enough, they've actually done some really interesting studies on like the effects of socioeconomic status mm -hmm. on um, you know adult behavior, and mm -hmm. it is through this stress mechanism that they that they speculate that is having this this kind of long-term effect. It's being of you know being um, of a lower socioeconomic uh, class. Actually, I mean, being in poverty, that's a very stressful circumstance it's you know a lot of uncertainty you know you might have not have you know ready access to food or you know health care and I mean tons of factors that go into making um, inhibiting the welfare right yeah or reducing the welfare of those populations right. due to chronic stress yes they particularly susceptible to stress is mm -hmm. what I'm saying mm -hmm. <laughs> so um, I think the last topic uh, we wanted to talk about was, well, actually, um, I guess I want to mention real quick that there's actually an interesting relationship between, um, so we talked about glucocorticoids and their effects. What we didn't talk about was their inflammatory effects, so oh, anti-anti-pro-inflammatory. Yes. Okay. Um, but in, so particularly in chronic stress in the central nervous system, which is your brain and your spinal cord, um, it glucocorticoids actually increase inflammation. Um, increased inflammation is um, associated with a broad, like a broad spectrum of neurodegenerative diseases. Um, so not just the most popular, which is Alzheimer's disease, mm -hmm. but um, Parkinson's and um, MS and so on. And um, in particularly with all, in, in particular with Alzheimer's disease. Um, there have been both experiments and correlational studies that have shown that chronic stress may impact um, one's susceptibility to Alzheimer's disease. So it may contribute to, you know, why one person gets Alzheimer's disease and another one doesn't. Um, because genetics actually only are predict a small percentage of um, cases of Alzheimer's disease. Right, and uh, if it does predict uh, Alzheimer's disease, it will predict uh, early people who will have early onset Alzheimer's. Yes. And I mean, there is some late onset correlation too. It's just, yeah, it's still, it's still a small percentage mm -hmm. um, or relatively small percentage, you know, it's not, you know, there's some genes like BRCA1 mm -hmm. that are what, like 98% predictive. And that's, um, yeah, Alzheimer's is not one of those diseases. BRCA1 meaning uh, breast cancer. Mm -hmm. The breast cancer and ovarian cancer genes, I think. Um, you go. So lastly, we're going to talk about sex differences. Yeah. So in the long term, um, people have observed that estrogen has a protective effect on the hippocampus. So it protects the hippocampus from long-term damage. Um, and in it, there is some evidence that it may have a short-term effect um, that's not so protective. So it may make it may make um, high estrogen may make an individual more susceptible to the cognitive symptoms associated with stress um, that has been observed in mice. Uh, it has not exactly been observed in humans, right. as I understand it. Right. Um, um, but you would, I mean, 
I mean, think at about least it. At, le at least across female menstrual cycles. Right. So as estrogen varies across a female menstrual cycle, their susceptibility to stress did not change mm -hmm. in that regard. Um, which you know, there may be any number of factors that account for that. So Could point just is, be the wrong type of stress to be honest with you. <laughs> so, uh, jury is still out on sex differences. I That's guess. Right. Although um, one other thing that estrogen does do is it actually exacerbates the hypertrophy in the amygdala. So the basically it may or may not increase responses to fear mm -hmm. under stress um under chronic stress um particularly in the short term it may or may not in the long term under chronic stress so i think that is all we have yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah there no, that's it um so we i mean we obviously can't cover everything and you know if any of you guys want to, you know, know anything further about stress, uh, maybe we can put it into another episode, maybe stress part two. Um, yeah. So we can get stressed out over that. Um, and we may go, as, go ahead and say that this is our second recording of our first podcast uh, because someone, cough, cough, Trevor, forgot to record our audio. So So if you guys want to see a uh, 50-minute video of me and Rachel talking and not being able to understand a word of what we say, we yeah, have that. We have that. You may upload it to Twitter sometime. Um, anyway, but if you hated us, maybe come back and, you know, check on us in a few months, see if we've gotten any better at this. If you liked us, then feel free to follow us on Twitter, at NeuroUndressed. Um, and if you don't want to miss one of our episodes, then please subscribe. Right. And we've got tons of great ideas coming up. We're going to be talking about attraction, love, uh, Sex, memory, gender. Learning. A lot of stuff. Any sort of neuroscience topic you can think of, we're going to try to cover. And our main goal here is to try to um, kind of make neuroscience less of a uh, seem less daunting. Mm -hmm. uh, you talk to people mm -hmm. about neuroscience and they kind of roll their eyes or they, you know, they kind of get intimidated by it. Mm -hmm. And we want people to understand that neuroscience is just like biology. I mean, it is, it bio is biology. It is applied biology. <laughs> yeah. If you can do biology, if you understand biology, well, you can not, do neuroscience. Yeah. It's biology, chemistry, and physics, but, you know, and it, it applies so much to the way that we live. Everything is biology, chemistry, and physics now. The, the nature of the world is interdisciplinary. That is true. But it, it, I think the cool thing about neuroscience is it's so much a part of our daily lives. Right. Um, and a lot of the topics are really, really relatable. And so that's kind of our goal is to cover those relatable topics in an easily digestible way, which we may or may not have done today. <laughs> we will definitely try to get better. Um, but if you have any comments or questions... Uh, you can email us at neurosciencedressed at gmail. And, oh, huge, huge thank you to Blaze Radio uh, here at UAB mm -hmm. for making this podcast possible. We are literally using their own equipment. Yeah, and, and time and resources and, you know, yeah. manpower. Yeah, so. th this could not have been done without them, so we, we thank them very, very much. Mm -hmm. And we're joking. Our producer, Trevor, is amazing. And... <laughs> And um, even if he did forget to record our first episode. Yeah, this was, uh, it was, well, we, we think of it as a, a good trial run. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I think we're ready to have a send off once again. Yeah. I'm Nick. And I'm Rachel. And this has been Neuroscience Undressed. We'll see you mm -hmm. next time. <laughs>